0: Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I am your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined with that dynamic duo who did William Tell with me and Julius Caesar. Please welcome Kathleen Vanderwill. Hi, everyone. And Grant.
1: Wonderful to be here.
0: Grant, what are we listening to and discussing
1: today? Lucretia Borgia.
0: Yes, that opera by Gaetano Donizetti, one of our bel canto masters. And this one's got lots of history, but it's also got a pretty exalted literary pedigree.
2: It does. It's from a play by Victor Hugo, who audiences may know as the author of both Les Miserables and The Hunchback of Notre Dame
0: one of the greats of French literature, and a lot of his works are transformed into gems of stage and screen.
2: Yes, he he took some time off from writing 1,000-page novels to, to write a few plays every once in a while, and those have been adapted into several operas, actually.
0: Yeah, and there's an important Verdi opera, I understand, that Victor Hugo inspired.
2: Yes, Victor Hugo's... Earlier play, earlier by one year, then this source material from 1832 is Le Roi s'Amuse, or The King Amuses Himself. Yes. And that is the source material for Rigoletto, a very famous opera.
0: Yes. Well, this one is Lucretia Borgia, who is not a fictional character. She existed. It's
1: true. One might almost call her a legendary character, because she is a person <laughs> who existed but the stories that have grown up around her are far beyond and in excess of what could have possibly been the truth of the matter.
0: So what roughly is the time period in which she lived?
1: She was born in 1480, which had her growing up around the time of Columbus's voyages to the Americas and living her life in the lead up to the Protestant Reformation.
0: Mm-hmm. Which is very interesting. We're we're going to just lay down some history before we get going, <laughs> and then we'll get to this opera and the reception it had and, and the usual things. But let's understand a little bit about this woman, because I mentioned I was doing Lucretia Borja to a friend of mine, and he shouts out, she's bad, she's bad. <laughs> Getting to your point of the
1: legend. She's one of these historical characters who's incredibly hard to parse, in part because she had a lot of enemies who told a lot of extremely salacious stories about her, all of which could have been true, none of which could have been true, but as is probably often the case, almost certainly somewhere in between.
0: Right. So at the time that she lived, and in fact, right up into the mid-19th century, Italy is not a united country.
1: Indeed. The southern portion of Italy is the Kingdom of Naples, which is under the Spanish crown at this time. The central portion of Italy is directly ruled by the Pope, and the northern portion of Italy is divided into a large number of warring princedoms, fiefdoms, and republics. And this is the environment in which the Renaissance takes hold.
2: And we should probably mention that Lucrezia herself is the Illegitimate daughter of a, a former pope. By the time we meet her, this this opera takes place in her later life, although she didn't live to be very old. Thirty nine, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but her father was Pope Alexander VI. and with his mistress, he had several children, and uh, Lucrezia was one of them. Well, he he couldn't get married. He you know, that of was not, not permitted as a
0: pope, <laughs> right? And he is, as I understand it, he is. The first pope who's very open about his children and favoring his children and giving his children important things to do or making sure they get married to important people, as in the case of Lucrezia. It it kind of is a hard thing to understand when you think you understand what the pope is all about, not so for her father.
1: But perhaps it makes a little bit more sense when you realize that the Protestant Reformation happened right after this.
2: Yeah, think right. less pope, more mafia. Don.
1: Yeah, the 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 deep level of institutional and indeed accepted corruption in terms of the popes being promiscuous, in terms of the popes openly favoring their relatives, in terms of the popes selling off offices, many things that are are and were uh, explicitly against Catholic teaching, which were simply embraced as a matter of deep cynicism.
0: And part of the reason they were trying to raise that money is because there were always these wars amongst these various states jockeying for power and control.
1: Yeah, the Pope was simultaneously a spiritual leader and very much the ruler of a medium-sized principality that was often at war with its neighbors and jockeying for territory and control and influence. And the Popes themselves often came from the prominent families who would try to get their family members on the papal throne and see their prestige and power increased by this.
0: Right. Lucretia's father himself, their origins are in Spain. Her father does come over to Italy as a young man to be with his uncle, who's a cardinal at that time and ultimately becomes pope. And it's not that much further down the road that Rodrigo, her father's actual name, becomes Pope Alexander VI. And he's with many women. He had many children, by the way, this pope. But he has one particular mistress who is his favorite. And that one is Lucrezia's mother and the mother of a couple of other favorites of Alexander's as well.
2: Yes, his chief mistress, Venazza had four children with Rodrigo. The, the famous Lucrezia is the third, but there's also the oldest son Giovanni, then there's Cesare Borgia, and then Joffrey is, is the youngest child. If, if any of the Borgias beyond Lucrezia are known to you, it might be Cesare. Cesare yes. is a very famous political figure during this time as well, if a short-lived one. And Machiavelli's the prince. Well, he mentions Cesare throughout, and the uh, it's better to be feared than loved quote is in direct reference to the way that Cesare rules yes (laughs) he was he was feared for good reason oh yes they were all um they were all a bit rotten I have to say well the power politics of the day were ruthless Mm -hmm. very game of thrones if you're looking for a reference
1: yeah just an awful lot of murder yeah just a lot (laughs) of murder
2: so much murder so much poison
0: yeah well that uh That maybe brings us to our
2: opera.
1: (laughs) Good dramatic subject.
0: I mean, the romances or the various liaisons and the political intrigue and the murder. Well, let's start our opera. It opens... With a bunch of guys having a really good time singing about beautiful Venice. By the way, this opera is an opera seria, meaning a serious opera, not an opera buffa. And it's in, it feels to me like it's in three acts, but it describes itself as being in two acts with a prelude, which is kind of the length of an act. So this prelude opens in Venice. The other acts will take place in Ferrara, where Lucrezia is duchess. But this opens in Venice, and it's all these guys having a great time singing about beautiful Venice, enjoying their time together.
1: And this is one of the high points of Venice. It's got an extraordinary amount of influence and power and control over the Mediterranean trade. It's a center of wealth and commerce and all sorts of espionage and skullduggery as well.
0: Well, it doesn't take long for us to realize who some of our main characters are. Besides these gentlemen, and they are in fact gentlemen, who are enjoying themselves in Venice, we see one gentleman emerge, and that is our lead tenor, Gennaro, and his best friend, Orsini. The
1: Orsini's being another of the important noble families jockeying for power in this era, although certainly less famous or perhaps infamous than the Borgias.
2: Indeed. I think the only reason I know the name Orsini is that it's uh, it's the Duke Orsini in Twelfth Night that Shakespeare references. (laughs) It's a very
0: esteemed name in Italy at this time, and we don't really get into Orsini's family at all. But we know he's not a friend of the Borgias, as that will be told to us very, very soon. Actually, I need to let you know with Orsini, Orsini is sung by a mezzo-soprano. So when you hear what sounds like a woman's voice, that is Orsini in this scene, because this scene has no women in it. In fact, this opera has very few women in it. You will hear Orsini, which is a trouser role. She sings the role of the man Orsini. It's a mezzo role. And then there's Lucrezia, and she's such a dominant character, you, you do feel like you get plenty of soprano singing
2: which reflects what we do know of Lucrezia's life. She's not really linked to any other significant women. In fact, any attempts by her, once her reputation was established, to, to make friends with other powerful women seems to have been rebuffed, mostly because she was often sleeping with their husbands. So this mm. play being almost solely focused on Lucrezia as the only woman, I think, is, is really quite fitting.
1: Yes. Yes, it, it points out the degree to which, in a man's world, she was very alone as a woman playing what was considered to be a man's game. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I, I will say that that's one of the things that if you do read extensively about Lucrezia Borgia, you get a little bit of a a reality check in terms of what it meant to be a woman in this world. I mean, you were a pawn in terms of who you could marry and what alliances could be formed. And if you were married, or even if you weren't married, but you were not in a convent, securely. The dangers of childbirth were extreme. That's, in fact, what got Lucrezia in the end, actually.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, she had 10 children with the husband that we will meet in this opera, and it was the last child that ended up ending her own life. We think of her as, as the sort of seductress character, always having affairs, and she was considered to be very beautiful. And what we do know of her appearance from, there's one portrait painted from life, she was a very arresting figure, um, but she also birthed 10 children. She was a complicated woman who had to fulfill many different roles, both in reality and in men's imaginations.
1: Yeah. And it should be said, of the 10 children, only four survived to adulthood. It was a dangerous time for that. Right, which yeah. is
2: pretty common numbers. Yeah. hmm Okay.
0: So in this scene, the woman's voice we hear is the mezzo, that's Orsini... And we aren't actually the clip we're going to play. We're not actually going to hear Gennaro, our our lead tenor, because Orsini has said, oh, I want to tell you this story about this old man in black that I met one night. And Gennaro's like, oh, please, Orsini, I've heard this so many times. I'm going to take a nap.
2: So we meet Gennaro and he decides to take a nap on stage. Yeah, it's always a a bit of a red flag when your main male character begins the opera by choosing to be unconscious. Perhaps he, right. will, he will continue to have things put over on him while he's not paying attention.
0: Yeah, yeah, but, but he's letting us know he knows all this information that Orsini's about to share with us.
1: And is surprisingly unfazed by it.
2: Yes, yeah, so we've talked around Lucrezia a lot. There's a lot of gossip around her, and of course that's what these these gentlemen are doing. They're gossiping about Lucrezia and her husband, the Duke of Ferrara, and talking about how Lucrezia has, well, they accuse her of having killed multiple members of their family at one point. But this story that Arsini is telling is actually a prophecy story. So there's a bit of magic happening here. And he tells this story to the other companions that said, they met this old man in the woods, himself and Gennaro, who said, You and your companions are destined to die together. This sort of terrible curse that he's recounting to them. And Gennaro doesn't take this seriously, but Arsini is a little bit more hip to the power of prophecy in an opera um, and and decides that it's important to tell the other people about this. But Gennaro just wanders off and, and falls asleep, not paying attention to the import of those words.
0: those are the guys those are all of the pals of our lead tenor gennaro who is still asleep after all that and i just a quick comment on the music and the singing that we're hearing this is bel canto donizetti rossini and bellini those are our three big bel canto composers and uh, rossini is the master first he is someone who has tremendous success in fact, we did Rossini's last opera together, the three of us, when we did William Tell, Guillaume Tell. That's the French, because at that point he had moved to France. But here we are in Italy. This is four years after the premiere of Guillaume Tell in 1833. And Donizetti is a master of the bel canto style. Though I will make just a quick note that this opera, an opera that precedes this by Three quarters of a year called Parasina. And Lucia de Lamamor, really, historians of music will point to this as Donizetti being a little more experimental, bringing deeper, darker voices into it, because as a rule, the Belcanto singing is a little lighter. We have this lovely melody, it's very lyrical. But nevertheless, all of Donizetti's work would fall squarely into the Belcanto repertoire. Beautiful music. So, Gennaro's sleeping, and all the rest of the guys have gone in to rejoin the dance, but he's not left alone on stage for very long.
2: No, a mysterious, masked, beautiful lady happens upon his sleeping form and gazes in rapture upon his face. Who could it possibly be? (laughs) Perhaps the prima donna, our lead soprano,
0: Lucrezia, (laughs) and she comes with one of her henchman, one of her secret agents, and he's the one who's located this Gennaro, it seems. And Lucrezia shares a little bit of her feelings with this secret agent before she's left alone with Gennaro.
2: Okay. Yes, Lucrezia shares that she's obviously well aware of the, the- malicious gossip around her. She she knows that everyone dislikes her and hates her and, and thinks she's a murderess. <laughs> so she's been searching for this man. We don't know why she's been searching for him, but she's very emotional at having found him, but also is afraid at revealing herself to him. So she is very fortunate to come upon him sleeping and she remains masked so that he at first is, is not aware of who she is.
0: Yes. And it's this very poignant comment she makes. If only I could awaken compassion in love in just one heart. And she's pinned her hopes on the heart of this sleeping man.
2: Yes, and I will want to talk about this a little bit later, but this is very Victor Hugo. I would say this is a very direct reference to Hugo's intentions in writing this play. If you've read any Hugo or even seen the Disney version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, you can can get the gist that Hugo is obsessed with the idea of sin and redemption. And the idea that anyone can be redeemed, even if they are a horrible sinner or uh, someone that society looks down upon, like perhaps a, a young woman who's become pregnant out of, out of wedlock or a dancer or someone from the, the dregs of society. He sees everyone as being capable of God's redeeming love. He's a, a deeply religious man. So Lucrezia is a perfect subject if you're looking to talk about mm-hmm. potentially unredeemable sinfulness. Yes. So
0: she will sing to this sleeping young man. And in a pause of her singing, you're going to see these two men appear in the shadows. And she can't hear them, but it's going to be this deep bass. And that's, in fact, her husband, Duke Alfonso, and his go-to secret agent henchman guy. And he's like, yeah, look at her. There she is again with this guy guy's still asleep but the duke's secret agent is gonna say oh that guy he's a nobody he's yeah he's a great soldier but he's an adventurer he's not really connected into any of the important families like you sir so we get just that little bit that she's even now being watched by her husband but all of her focus is on this young man and how happy she thinks he's going to make her that was some bel canto singing. For folks who listen to a lot of opera, you may even recognize the voice. We will do the full credits at the beginning of the second half, as we always do. But I have to just say to you right now, yes, you're right. That was Montserrat Caballet, the indomitable powerhouse singer, who also has a really special place in modern popular history. So have you all seen that recent movie about Queen, the pop singers, and Freddie Mercury, the lead singer, there's a scene in the movie where he gets inspiration from opera, and he plays some opera music, and we do know that there is a direction they go when they bring in some operatic singing.
1: Figaro! That is in the actual Bohemian Rhapsody.
0: Yeah, Freddie Mercury is a highly trained singer, but one of the concert tours that he did, and was with, in fact... This fabulous singer, Montserrat Caballet, his interest in the opera, I mean, it's anyway, it all filters in. It's fun. Anyway, she, we'll, we'll get to hear a lot more of her gorgeous singing as we go along. But in our story, finally, Gennaro wakes up from his nap. And there he is on stage with this lovely woman looking at him adoringly.
2: Yes, one always likes to wake from a nap with a, a beautiful woman just standing there staring at you. Definitely an opera. You you like that. Yep. Yes, Gennaro wakes and, and sees this this woman and and is struck by her beauty and is is fascinated by her, but doesn't seem to know who she is. But he doesn't care. Really, does he?
0: <laughs> not not yet in any way, he doesn't.
2: <laughs> He's a romantic soul.
0: <laughs> right. He's so romantic and She, without him having introduced himself, I might add, says, Gennaro, can it possibly be that you give me your
2: love? Yes. One of the things that is interesting about this particular scene is that (laughs) it is played very much like a love scene. There is a song that we are going to hear very soon in which Gennaro sings of the love that he had for his mother and his humble origins because he is a person who. Doesn't really know his origins. we love a, a child of mysterious origins in opera mm. but it, it, it's an interesting moment, and I won't keep you at suspense all too much longer, but there's an interesting moment where he sees this beautiful woman he's he's impressed by her beauty, he yes. falls in love with her in a way in the way that he talks. There's an instant connection, isn't there? And then he immediately starts thinking about his mother mhm now we're it sounds
1: emotionally healthy, yeah,
2: we're a few years <laughs> before. Freud here but um <laughs> <laughs> but we can always retrospectively <laughs> apply his his techniques to anything and i would say there's some there's some questionable you know why are you thinking about your mom when you see this beautiful lady yes but she's overwhelmed
0: by the fact that this person she's hoping will give her love seems to be giving love to her and he pauses and says and and this is how we cover that plot hole in this opera, he says, I will love you as much as it's possible because there's only one other woman that I will love more than you. And that is my mother. And that's when he launches into all of this. Well, the instant connection, the thinking of
2: the mother. Kathleen, do you have an explanation for all that? Well, you know, I don't think you have to be a genius to realize that Well, she is his mother. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We, the audience, are not told that at this point. We will be told later on when he himself discovers this. But Lucretia knows that this is her son, her long-lost son. And it is worth pausing for a minute here to address one of the most persistent and egregious rumors about the Borgias, which is that Lucretia and her brothers were lovers.
1: And her and her father, too, just not to be outdone.
2: Right, of course, because if you're going to go in for one sin, why not just, you know, plunge or shoes in blood, as Shakespeare said.
0: <laughs> you're going to work Shakespeare in, whether it's Victor Hugo or Shakespeare. <laughs> Victor
2: Hugo would approve. <laughs> yes, and, and this this opera will explicitly have some plot points where it's relevant to understand that there is a, a long-standing rumor that Lucrezia was sleeping with both Cesare and Giovanni. And that they fought over her. There have been rumors that Cesare had one of her husbands killed, both because the husband was no longer uh, politically useful to them and because of his jealousy over his sister's love life. So, so that is a, is in the air here. And the idea is that this is her son with Cesare.
0: That's never said explicitly in the opera, but it's in the play. I'll say. Oh, yeah. is it? It's more explicit. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. The opera sidesteps that a little bit, but but there is this there is this real life half brother is how he's referred to during her lifetime because there's this this uh, you know illegitimate child. It's like they're just everywhere. I mean, particularly mm-hmm. when the pope is involved, like they're all illegitimate as a, or a child of nature, as they might say. Yeah. There is this young man who comes to live with her for a while, who is the half-brother, but a lot of people suspect it's really a child born prior to her marriage to this particular duke, her third husband. So there's just all this swirls around. Ultimately, her brother Cesare will claim this young man as his own son born out of wedlock, but also Alexander the Sixth, her father, the Pope, will claim this young man as his own son. So... It's just all rife for rumors, speculation, Mm -hmm. accusation.
2: Yes, and we don't know the answers to that. And we will probably never know the answers to that particular story. But I will say that Lucrezia was not shy about leaving evidence of her other affairs. Um, We have documented love letters between her and and multiple men.
1: Yes. Including her husband's sister's husband.
2: Yes, so... (laughs) <laughs> that would be Francesco II, the Marquess of Mantua. So, this is relevant to our story, and I'll be very brief about it. But during the time of her marriage to the Duke that we meet in this opera, she was engaging in an open affair with her brother in law. <laughs> Doesn't really feel like she could engage in any relationship without there being some weirdness to it. Francesco was married to Isabella d'Este and Mm -hmm. that's Alfonso's sister. She's another famous female figure at this time. But Francesco and Lucrezia wrote a lot of passionate letters to each other, and their affair ended when Francesco contracted syphilis. For our purposes, it is interesting to note that Francesco's son contracted syphilis through his father. It's a very tangled web, so there is already some weirdness in that relationship in terms of the son. There was speculation that that was her child and that she had syphilis, or that, the, you know, so who, who knows? Anyway, it is very messy, and any generation that likes to think it invented the open relationship, well, you're wrong. They've been doing it for a while. <laughs>
1: In fact, pretty much the only sexual relationship she ever had that she did deny, and denied vehemently, was with her first husband, who she needed an annulment with, and so even though they were notionally married for four years, she and largely her father, the Pope, were very insistent that uh, nothing had happened there.
0: Yeah, he was not pleased with those accusations, her first husband.
1: (laughs) Well, he was ultimately forced to publicly Mm -hmm. announce that he was impotent.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so she had a really interesting life. And all of these stories about her and all of the insinuations, I mean, that's just that side of it. But then there's also the murder and the Mm -hmm. violence side of it as well. And a lot of this gets distilled into the Victor Hugo story, and then distilled further into our opera. Yes, well,
2: you know what they say, well-behaved women rarely make history. (laughs) Lucrezia Borgia, she
0: made history for sure. All right, so one of the things that Gennaro lets us know and tells Lucrezia here when he's singing about his love for his mother (laughs) is that my mother was the victim of a cruel, powerful man, and she feared for me, and so she kept herself secret from me. But she gave me some gifts, some arms and some horses, and so that you understand how he becomes this successful mercenary adventurer. And Lucrezia is touched that he still has this letter from his mother. Let's hear a little bit of these two singing about Gennaro's love for his mother. to Opera for Everyone and we are getting close to the end of the prelude of our opera Lucrezia Borgia by Gaetano Donizetti. Do we have any idea why it is a prelude? I believe it's because it's in a different location and the Hmm. main action that they're focusing on takes place in Ferrara. This is setting the scene for the main action, the actual
1: drama. So they're like trying to follow Aristotle's Poetics Laws, and this is their cheat around it. This isn't part of the story. We have unity of place, because that's just the prologue.
2: <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yes, that sounds right to me.
1: That actually sounds totally credible yeah. for like the context, yeah.
2: <laughs> All right, so
0: <laughs> at the end of this scene, we don't get to leave these two happy people together being happy, though, setting up the conflict that will come up later on. Lucrezia says, oh, no, people are approaching, and she has to put her mask back on. But before she gets her mask on, she is recognized.
2: Yes, Gennaro's companions have returned, and they recognize her as Lucrezia Borgia. Mafio Orsini, especially, immediately confronts her and tells her, Gennaro, and the audience that she has murdered his brother while the brother was sleeping.
0: And then each of the companions in turn explains what terrible thing her family has done to their own family. So they all have a very personal grudge complaint, legitimate complaint against her within the context of this story. And she's horrified that this is all being talked about
2: because she's just found this young man to feel tenderness towards her. I imagine it doesn't Cast the best impression when you're being accused of murder in front of your son lover.
1: I just gotta say, if I ever meet a murderer in a secluded place... I'm not going to go immediately announcing that I know they're a murderer. I'm just (laughs) going to like quietly mind my own business and hope that nobody makes a fuss.
2: Well, it's interesting you say that because I guess that's their way of underestimating her. They think, Mm -hmm. oh, it's five or so men and just her.
0: And it does go on for a while. And she is feeling, I mean, I think they feel empowered to do this because it's all of them. They're all of the same mind. And she is one individual, one woman amongst them. So they're not really feeling threatened by her at this
1: point. My money's on her. Yeah. <laughs> well,
0: let's listen to a little bit of this last portion of the prelude. And you will even hear the men yell, it's the Borgia, et la Borgia. And Gennaro will exclaim, Dio, God, he can't believe that this is all happening. for everyone. And we're listening to La Prezia Borgia by Donizetti. And we have mentioned the inspiration, the foundation of this story as being a play by Victor Hugo. But I'd also like to acknowledge the fact that the libretto itself is written by Felice Romani, who is a prolific, the top librettist, I would say, of his day. He wrote lots and lots of libretti for Bellini, for example, Norma and the Capulets and the Montagues. And he also wrote a couple of libretti for Rossini. And for Donizetti, he wrote Anne Boleyn, The Elixir of Love, that wonderful comic opera that uh, I think probably is played as much as anything of Donizetti's these days. And this opera I mentioned earlier called Parasina, which interestingly enough, is about this very same family set in Ferrara about a century earlier. And it's one of these intrigue stories where the Duke has his second wife murdered because she's having an affair with his illegitimate son. So plenty of drama going on in these areas. And Romani was the librettist you wanted. He was profoundly admired for his abilities as a poet, and he knew how to write for an opera composer. Donizetti, Really, if he'd had his druthers, would have only worked with Romani. So that's our actual librettist. But Kathleen, can you tell us any more about Victor Hugo in his play?
2: Sure. I mean, it's, there's, there's almost too much to say about Hugo. So I'll, I'll try to be brief. But Hugo writes this play in 1833 which is also the year that this opera premieres. So ah. it was, it snapped up very quickly. Yes. <laughs> and that's really because Hugo had a, a reputation as a, a national treasure in France. By this time, he would go on to, to write Les Mis, which is Les Miserables, which is his magnum opus in the 1860s. But he had already written Hunchback of Notre Dame a few years prior to this play. And then we had mentioned he'd written Le Roi s'amuse a year before Hugo, as I said, much to say about him, that he was also a politician. He was elected to the Senate in the 40s. He was a firebrand. He had <laughs> very strong views on everything <laughs> mm. and was always getting himself into trouble with whoever the, the government or reigning monarch was at the time. This time in his career is no, no exception. His play, Le Roi Samus, only lasted one night before it was banned because it had a sort of under-the-table critique of the reigning monarch in France at the time. He yeah. would later get <laughs> thrown out of a country for criticizing Queen Victoria, he he was uh, always on the run or always making trouble, quite like a lot of his characters.
0: And with La Wace Semuse, which is the inspiration for Rigoletto, even in Verdi's show, they had to demote uh, the titled character, not a king, because that behavior we couldn't mm-hmm. we couldn't accuse a king of that sort of gallivanting.
2: Yes, Hugo didn't really have a, a good self preservation impulse, I would say, but he was. Probably a much better man for it. He held a lot of views, which we would recognize as ahead of their time. He was against capital punishment. He was against slavery. He was very anti-colonialist only. yeah, Sometimes he would speak pro-colonialist activities only if they were to remove slavery from a certain area because he considered that one of the world's great ills. And as I said, he is trying to, in his work, and especially in, in Le Bois and in Lucrezia Borgia, he's trying to take characters that seem unredeemable and then give them mm-hmm. a reason for you to care about their spiritual redemption. So in this case, you have Lucrezia Borgia, a sort of the worst of the worst character, who yeah. you know we know is having been at least accused of a multitude of sins. And he says, well, what if we look at her not as this temptress, but as a mother? What if we cast her as a mother and say mm-hmm. that she has this redeeming quality to her, that she loves her child, and he wants you to see her as human and redeemable for that reason?
0: Yeah, well, that'll get a little bit complicated by the <laughs> events yet to come in the <laughs> But. It's never so simple. One thing I wanted to mention about the premiere of this opera in 1833 is it is a huge success. It opens the, the carnival season in Milan, which is this big, important season for operas. Maybe, Grant, could you explain to us what carnival season is and why it would be important for opening operas?
1: The carnival season is the season that immediately precedes Lent, and Lent is a time of traditionally penitence and giving things up and fasting as opposed to carnival which comes before which is very much the antithesis of all that and became and and remains in many countries a very large cultural institution and festival and it's one of the places that opera really found its footing in a lot of countries
0: yeah and it's a it's a place of honor to open the carnival season it's right after christmas
1: And one of the famous images one finds in Carnival, because of the nature of it as being this inversion of the ordinary order of things, is the use of masks, Mm. uh, which we see in this play.
0: Yes, yes. And quite a lot of
1: operas, in fact. (laughs)
0: have the use in plays, have the use of masks during this season because you're going to be well-behaved later (laughs) during Lent. Mm -hmm. Well, the season begins right after Christmas. So it is on the 26th of December in 1833 that this premieres. Big success. It is performed 33 times right there in Milan at La Scala. And very quickly, it moves throughout Europe and ultimately goes to several years later, to London, to Paris, to New York. And one other comment about Victor Hugo, when this is played in Paris in 1840, he goes to see it. And a lot of people think he didn't like the opera because he sued, but he didn't sue because he didn't like the opera. He quite liked the opera, but he sued because the published libretto, which is an important part of enjoying an opera, particularly in a time without surtitles. He says, no, 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 no. You plagiarized me. I don't mind you taking my story and giving me credit, but you cannot just, you know, you say you're a translator, you're translating the Italian. There was a, a Frenchman who translated the Italian into French to publish a libretto, but you cannot make money selling my words
2: Mm. like we said ahead of his time
0: (laughs) yeah he actually won his lawsuit and there are complications and other changes that are made particularly in the french-speaking world but it's a very popular opera not as frequently played i would say in in the united states and and even in europe as some of donizetti's other operas but it does have significant revivals periodically
1: but I will say, Hugo lives in a time when his country is whiplash backing forth on monarchy versus republic, and, and will continue to for yeah. some decades. Did you notice how well the Republic of Venice comes across in this play? Surprisingly so. The <laughs> noble lion of Venice, their brave protector, mm-hmm. right?
2: Yeah, and he starts his life as a royalist, but he becomes a republican.
1: And in this context, republican meaning someone who's against the monarchy and wants some form of representative or popular rule.
2: And that's a, a significant shift in both Victor Hugo's politics and his work. As I said, in the 40s, he serves as a, as a senator during the Republic. But if anyone knows anything about the year 1848, it mm-hmm. is a year of massive upheaval across all of Europe. Hugo's work will reflect that post-48 universe. Well, back
0: to our story. We are ready for act one. Having gotten all this political and literary history down, we are ready for the actual action of the play. No, I'm sorry. I feel like there was plenty of action in the prelude. But act one, we find ourselves in Ferrara, where this duke who was only in the shadows earlier, he is the man in charge. And we open on a scene with this duke and that same fellow who was in the shadows with him. And they're a little concerned about this young man who had been sleeping. This is Gennaro.
2: Yes. Once again, Lucrezia pays for her, her reputation. It is assumed by her husband that this man is her lover, as it would be assumed by the audience at this point as well, too. You know, only you know that he's her son because we've told you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think a
2: lot of people go into operas knowledgeable. Yeah.
1: There are no spoilers in opera. <laughs> there
2: are no spoilers nope. in opera. Um, But yes, it is. He assumes and he is is I don't know if it's it's fair to say that he's jealous from a personal standpoint, at least historically, we know that their marriage was mutually unfaithful, but he he still has his honor to consider. And having married such a notorious woman, he wants to, uh, shall we say, do something about this.
1: And this is one of the big questions about the murders and the skullduggery that surrounds the historical Lucretia's lovers and husbands, is this very live question of, was she herself offing these people for some reason? Or were the other people around her, usually her brother being the one blamed for this, Cesare, were they the ones doing it? Because there is this interesting question here of what's the degree to which she has agency Mm -hmm. in all these things that are happening to her, and the degree to which, connected to that, she has blame for these things. You get the people who really hate her who say, she was in charge of everything and she did all these awful things. And then you get the people who really love her and say, oh, she was just coasting along. Mm -hmm. And then you get people who are trying to split the difference. She seems to have been very powerful in certain ways, but also may have been a victim of many different circumstances, including the violence of the powerful men around her, including her father the Pope, and her brother Cesare, and her various husbands.
2: Yeah, and it's it's worth noting here that the accusations of incest with especially Cesare all would have taken place when she was very, very young. I mean she was I believe she was married off when she was still a teenager.
1: Mm-hmm Thirteen, yeah. Yeah. So, her first marriage was when she was thirteen to age seventeen,
2: right? And and so, <laughs> that's the one that was annulled. That oh, was right, right. And despite what we may say of her at this point in her life, when she appears in this opera, much of the accusations that are leveled against her, she was extremely young, and and was surrounded by a lot of powerful men. So, you know, we we would do well to remember both the beginning and the end of her life. She experienced the lack of agency that every young girl in this time period of a significant family or, or not would have in terms of not being able to choose her husband and being married very, very young. And then she also bears many children and is ultimately dies in childbirth like many women of her time period and station. So whatever her agency, there are things about her gender that forced her to experience some, some real terrors. Yes. Yeah. And part of
0: the uh, double standard if you will or part of the morality that is expected of women that the men are not subjected to is this question of legitimate heirs i mean that is also a complicating factor here i mean regardless of what the duke's feelings are he needs to protect his line and that's part of what's always top of mind mm-hmm. for a husband looking for heirs so regardless of how he feels he sings this song that I'm going to get revenge on this young man because he is distracting my wife in dangerous ways. Base, that's Lucretia's husband. I don't think I'd want to mess with somebody that determined.
2: It's true. Lucretia's uh, scary in her own way, in a sort of sneaky poison seductress kind of way, but he's powerful and scary in a brute force kind of way.
0: He is indeed. Well, pretty quickly, we're going to change scenes and we're going to be back to our merry fellows, these comrades of Gennaro's. Orsini's there, all the guys are there, and Gennaro is there, and they're all. Having a really good time.
2: Gennaro, though, is a little bit cast down at having found that he had inadvertently at first sight fallen in love with his mysterious lady mom and then found out that she was a baddie. He's a little upset about it.
0: Yeah, and and his friends do just exactly what you would expect his friends to do. They tease him about it.
2: They're like, you're in love with her. So he decides to um show them how little he cares, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And act his youth. Yes. And they pass by the Borgia mansion and there's a, a the name Borgia is on the mansion. And so he takes down the B so that it reads Orgia, like Orgy. And that's his version of a very funny. Thing. So middle school. So <laughs> middle school. It doesn't it make you wonder how old he is? I, I was wondering kind of how old he is, like throughout the whole play, you know, because she's clearly like still hot middle you know hot middle aged for her time but you know hot to him and he's grown enough to be a man but he acts like a 12 year old
1: and it does allude to some of these accusations against the Borgias famously that the Pope would host large orgies in the Vatican
0: mm, it hurts because it's true they mm. they know that it's going to enrage the Duke his wife in particular, because it's her name that's been defaced and made mockery of. But all the buddies, the ones who were teasing him, they understand right away, this is dangerous. This is really dangerous. We are not on home turf here. Because
1: we have moved away from the safety of Venice. The safety of Venice and the protection of Venice is repeatedly invoked in the prologue Mm. because it is this republic that this place that is ruled by uh, mercantile leaders rather than by uh, dukes and duchesses and margraves and the rest, where they have a measure of protection. But here they have entered the realm of feudal power politics, and that is where the Borgias are at their strongest.
0: Right. And part of the power politics means you have your agents, your henchmen doing your bidding, And in this next scene that we're going to hear a little clip from, we have the Duke's agent, that tenor that we've heard from before, and a bass, Astolfo, and that is Lucretia's agent. And when they see each other, they're both looking for Gennaro. And it's this, what passes for comedy in this show. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, who are you looking for? (laughs) I'm looking for Gennaro, so am I. I'm going to take him to the Duchess. I'm going to take him to the Duke. One road leads to pleasure, the other pain and the clip that we're going to listen to we have these two agents arguing with each other and pretty soon it's not man against man because the duke's agent brings in all these men to back him up and that's our male chorus and they successfully intimidate lucrezia's agent and he backs off fine fine take him to the duke i'm out of here they've intimidated him And in the proxy conflict between Lucrezia and the Duke, the Duke is successful here. Listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes
1: opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. It airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in beautiful Jackson, Wyoming.
2: If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast, where you can find a rich trove of past episodes. I'm
0: your host today, Pat Wright, joined today by- The
1: infamous Grant.
2: And the
0: erudite Kathleen. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Always a pleasure. Please stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. We are listening to Lucrezia Borgia by Gaetano Donizetti. I'm Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by two co-hosts, Kathleen and Grant. Welcome back. So great to be here.
1: Wonderful to be here.
0: Well, before we get back to our story, I want to just take a moment and thank all the people involved in creating this lovely CD that we've been listening to. This recording was made in 1966 with the RCA Italiana Opera Orchestra and Opera Chorus. The conductor was Jonal Perli. And the singers?
2: Don Alfonso is sung by Ezio Flagello. Donna Lucrezia Borgia is Montserrat Caballé. Gennaro is Alfredo Krauss. Orsini is Shirley Verrett. And then his other companions are Franco Ricciardi, Franco Romano, Ferruccio Mazzoli, and Ferruccio Jacopucci.
0: Thank you one and all for this beautiful music. And before we get to the opera helmet quiz, Grant, I hope you're preparing in your mind. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to take a moment and remind everyone that if you're enjoying Kathleen's commentary on Opera for Everyone, you are in store for a treat. If you will just please go to Substack, Constructive Criticism, Kathleen Vanderwill, and It is such an amazing blog. I have no idea, Kathleen, how you manage to watch, read, listen to all the things that you do to prepare, never mind the commentary that you
1: make. It's wonderful. I'm reasonably confident she has a time turner.
2: I have to say that <laughs> um, the fairly recent writer's strike has perhaps given me a little bit of a window to catch up because believe me, there's much that I haven't seen too, <laughs> but I, I try. So yeah, absolutely. Check it out. I have a few recent posts on the new Queen Charlotte, a show that's out, and also on Mrs. Davis, the new show from Peacock. I, I just,
0: I adore reading your comments because you alert me to shows that I didn't even know were on and it's become the way I pick what I'm going to watch. So thank you for all your work on constructive criticism on Substack, Kathleen Vanderwill. All right, Grant, you're up. Do you have your helmet on?
1: I never take it off. This is the way.
0: (laughs) This is the way. (laughs) And now, please tell us what we've heard so far in the story of Lucrezia Borgia.
1: Once upon a time, there is a beautiful woman named Lucrezia Borgia. She proceeds to murder anyone who is in her path to power, or does she? Who knows? It's all shrouded Mm -hmm. in mystery. But she is on her fourth husband, for no suspicious reasons whatsoever, (laughs) and is at least blamed for an awful lot of murdering. Meanwhile, the scene takes us to Gennaro and Orsini, these two handsome young men in the Republic of Venice. They are celebrating Carnival, they are having a lovely time, and our good friend Orsini begins to tell a story. Gennaro is promptly bored out of his mind and wanders off. Orsini's story, it turns out, is about how he and Gennaro need to fear the Borgia family to which Lucretia belongs because they will end up being the death of both of them. Or so he heard from a strange old man in the woods once upon a time. Meanwhile, our buddy Gennaro goes off and promptly falls asleep. When he awakes, there is a beautiful masked woman. I wonder who that could be. They exchange words of affection for one another, and he is utterly and completely smitten by her beauty, and as emotionally healthy people generally do in such situations, begins to talk about his mother. She encourages his love of his long-lost mother, And then all of his friends arrive, check in on him, and discover that the murderer of half of their families, it seems like, is standing right there with a mask that does not conceal her identity from them, because it is time for the plot to identify her. And so, (laughs) this takes us to Act 2, or Act 1, depending on how you want to be counting it, where we find ourselves in the Duchy of Ferrara where Duke Alfonso, the husband of Lucretia Borgia, holds absolute power. Duke Alfonso believes that Gennaro is the lover of his wife because his agent saw them exchanging words of affection for one another. And he decides, as emotionally healthy adults generally do, to murder him. (laughs) Our friends Gennaro, Orsini, and their merry men, in the Duchy of Ferrara, then proceed to have a little bit of a spat. The friends are making fun of the fact that their buddy was taken in by the evil, seductive assassin woman, and in an effort to make himself look cool for the other guys, he goes and messes up a sign, turning the word Borgia into Orgia, or orgy, uh, because- He's got a middle school sense of humor. (laughs) And also, the Borgias are famous for their, let's call it, bad behavior, if you know what I mean. (laughs) They threw big parties, if you know what I mean. If
2: you've seen Eyes Wide Shut, you know what we mean.
1: Exactly. And so, no sooner has he defaced this sign than he has been observed by not one, but two spies, because this is Renaissance Italy after all, and if you're not a spy, you're being (laughs) spied on. The two spies argue about which one of the two of them will get to take in Gennaro for his outrage of peeling off the B from the sign, these two spies being in the employ respectively of the Duke and the Duchess. They would go at it for a bit, but ultimately the Duke's man brings in reinforcements and succeeds in carrying Gennaro away. How'd I do?
2: So good.
0: Well done. Thank you so much for that that entertaining summary of what we've discussed so far. And I'd like to include another response to the story of Lucrezia Borgia, or the opera, I should say. We mentioned a little bit before that, in spite of some other concerns, Victor Hugo very much enjoyed it. But Eugène Delacroix, uh, probably the most famous of the French Romantic painters, He's painted this amazing picture of, of a woman dressed as Liberty holding the French flag and the people behind her. Well, he saw the opera in 1853, about 20 years after it premiered, and he could not say enough wonderful things about it after admitting that he typically doesn't like any of Donizetti's work. Donizetti was very, very popular in Paris for a long time. In fact, Hector Berlioz, who was a commentator as well as a composer. Hector Berlioz used to complain that that Donizetti was everywhere. It's like he was invading and trying to take over Paris. But, (laughs) But Delacroix says, I want to make amends to the unhappy Donizetti now dead. I want to render justice. We mortals, after all, we are unfair to contemporary talent. He says, Watching this opera is like the way one suddenly falls in love years later with a person one has been used to seeing every day, and to whom one thought oneself indifferent.
2: Wow, lovely words.
1: What a fascinating, I want to call it a compliment, but is it?
2: <laughs> I think it is, and I think he's, he's
0: apologizing for his past opinion.
2: Okay, so to go back to our story, when we last left the unfortunate Gennaro, he was in the hands of some uh, rather dangerous brigands in the service of the duke. But what is going to happen next? Well, he's taken to the duke's palace.
1: And this is as good a point as any to observe that the correct address for a duke is your grace. Your grace is not the address for a king. Game of Thrones got this wrong and it is popping up in other places and it annoys me. Your majesty or your highness or your royal highness, these are the addresses given to princes and kings. Dukes and duchesses are your grace. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to be clear on that.
2: that's a great clarification grant i as somebody who's who's trying to write a romance novel set in the early 19th century i've had to deeply research this topic as well so yes everybody please start saying your grace next time you meet a duke (laughs) now as i was saying we're in the duke's chambers and we know that the unfortunate Gennaro has been taken there but first we have a few scenes where we get to meet the Duke a little bit more. We haven't really spent that much time with him and we haven't seen him interact with his unfortunately unhappy wife (laughs) that much either. So we get a few scenes where we understand his motivations a little bit more.
0: Yes, and the first thing we see them doing when they interact is she is furious. She comes in and she demands, I need a promise from you that you're going to give me justice. Someone has defaced my name outside the palace, someone has taken off the bee and well, we know how that happens. Yes,
2: well the, the name of Borgia is, I mean that's the thing that that keeps them all safe in a way, just just like belonging to any mafia family. so a disgraced name. If anybody were to not fear the name of Borgia but were to instead laugh at the name of Borgia, that is death. So her anger is understandable. And yes, she demands the death of whoever is responsible for that. And then, of course, the audience knows that that is Gennaro.
1: Well, it is important to have your name feared. I mean, you know, more important, one might even say, than to have your name loved.
2: She certainly would agree.
0: (laughs) Nice tie-in to the earlier conversation where you let us know that her brother was the ideal prince that Machiavelli wrote about but she is convinced that there is no risk in asking the Duke for the ultimate punishment for the evildoers who pried the bee off of the name outside the palace. There's lots of people who hate the Borgias, and Gennaro couldn't possibly be there and have done it. Makes no sense.
2: Little does she know that it is Gennaro, and the Duke immediately brings the, the young man before her, and she is flabbergasted, stunned. And very upset.
0: What in the world is he doing there?
2: And of course, the duke says, Oh, do you know this young man? How strange. (laughs) Because of course, he knows that they know each other. Although he might mistake the nature of their relationship.
0: Yeah. So instantly, Lucrezia changes her request of the duke. Oh, him. Well, you don't need to. She says, you know, in fact, the, uh, the, the great men... One of their elements of greatness is showing mercy. And that's what I want you to do in this case. After she's just made him promise to kill the culprit. And he continually says, no, no, no. And finally she says, why won't you show mercy? And that's when the Duke reveals, I, I know what
1: you've been up to.
0: You're in love with him. So I have to
1: kill him, of course. The only option. Makes you wonder if he's done this before.
3: Hmm, it
0: does. Going with
1: the answer being yes. uh
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's get a little flavor for the interaction between this husband and this wife. We've been building up, building up, but this is ultimately when she says, ah, I can see there will be no mercy. And at that point, when she realizes pleading won't work, she flips to threats. Her anger moves from trying to be ingratiating to trying to be threatening and trying to force him to obey her will it doesn't work
1: again it's the choice between love and fear (laughs)
4: the <laughs>
0: excited about what's going on that was don alfonso and lucrezia borgia in Donizetti's opera lucrezia borgia and she's not going to get her way she's not going to get mercy for the young man that she was talking to outside the palace that night in venice she's furious and he says okay i'll give you a choice he can die by the sword or by poison and he's just twisting that metaphorical knife into lucrezia at this point So now that they've had it out between the two of them, she has to compose herself because the duke brings in Gennaro. And the duke is so friendly with Gennaro, so elegant. Gennaro thinks things are not going as badly as he thought they might.
2: Yes. And at first he even says that he's going to spare his life. And we then discover that Gennaro and the the duke have, have a connection of a sort. Gennaro was responsible for saving the Duke's father's life in battle. We've talked about this before, that he's sort of a soldier who fights for Venice, and he has saved the Duke's father's life at one point. But being the man of honor that he
0: is, he says, I would never have told you this until after you pardoned me, because I wouldn't want that to affect your opinion of me. I wanted to be a man
2: of honor.
1: Hmm. Choosing honor over what might be self-preservation. I wonder if that'll come up again.
2: Yes. I don't think he, um, he's not playing with honorable people and I don't think he realizes that yet. Yeah, But yeah. And, and for a moment, Lucrezia really holds out hope that this will sway the Duke that he'll spare Gennaro for real. But the Duke in this aside keeps saying, you know, the woman is, is a fool for holding out hope. And Lucrezia keeps saying, Oh, if only he would change his mind. We have this, this beautiful trio. And then the Duke offers to employ Gennaro, says, "You know, will you be a soldier for me?" Gennaro says, "Oh no, i'm yeah. I'm loyal to Venice. I've taken a sacred oath." And then the Duke offers him money. says, "Here, why don't you take some money because you've you've done this service for my father?" And Gennaro refuses mm. that as well. So you get these different potential opportunities for Gennaro's salvation,, yes. but the Duke is not an honorable man.
0: No, but at this point, Gennaro thinks he is. And, and meanwhile, Lucretia's in the background just just tying herself in knots because she knows that the duke is not an honorable man. But the duke says, well, it's all good. We're all friends now. I'm, I've pardoned you. Let's have a drink together. My wife, darling, you poor.
2: And you'll remember that we mentioned the duke has told Lucrezia she has to choose the method by which Gennaro dies. And he offers her the sword or poison. And she says, not the sword. So one should one should remember that at this point when the wine is being served.
0: Yeah, it's a very interesting moment where she knows what's going on. The Duke knows what's going on. And Gennaro thinks he knows what's going on.
1: But to be clear, Gennaro has not known what's going on at any point <laughs> in this entire opera.
2: You, you might as well still be asleep.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Would have worked out better if you were. Poor
2: Gennaro. Well, let's listen to
0: the three of them with these different perspectives in a beautiful trio that they sing at this scene.
2: Gennaro, Lucrezia, and the Duke about to share a glass of wine that might not be all that healthful for Gennaro.
0: They will not be drinking out of the same glasses.
1: It's always important to use wine charms when you're poisoning people.
2: (laughs) So true. (laughs) You wouldn't want to accidentally poison the wrong person. Oh no, that's never happened. Uh, So they do, they drink. They drink the wine and Gennaro drinks the poisoned wine and as soon as the Duke exits after executing his plan, Lucrezia rushes to Gennaro and says I have the antidote to the poison that he just gave you, because as we have discussed previously, Lucrezia herself was, she was a renowned poisoner herself or so it is suspected, and so she just carries these antidotes upon her person at all times Thank goodness So she gives him the antidote, and he drinks it, and all is well.
1: Phew, I was so worried this would have a sad ending
0: <laughs> we have another act yet to come. But he does become quite angry with her, and he expresses his anger, saying, "What was I thinking? Of course, only death could await me at your court. And she doesn't want to hear any of the insults. They don't matter. Just drink Gennaro. Just drink the antidote,
2: yes. and he he does drink the antidote. They have this conversation where she tells him that the reason he's been poisoned is that her husband thinks that she's his lover. He also says, you know, I want you to drink, do it for your mother. So there's a lot of the same issues going on that we talked about before. But after he's had the, the antidote, she begs him to leave, to flee. And at the end, she leads him through a secret door and he escapes. And that is the end of the
0: first act. We'll hear just a little clip of the interaction when he realizes what has happened to him when he thought the Duke was being hospitable. Opera for everyone, and we are listening to Donizetti's Lucrezia Borgia.
2: One of the things that we've talked about throughout this opera is that Lucrezia is a very arresting woman. She's very beautiful. There are several portraits of her, but none that we were entirely sure was painted from life. A lot of them are just sort of painted from literary depictions of Lucrezia sort of adding to that mystery and myth
3: mm. but
2: recently there was a portrait discovered that we think was painted from life that was painted the year of her death in 1519 and the reason they discovered that they thought it was actually Lucrezia is she's holding a dagger in the painting to her her breast and, and Grant do you want to talk a little bit about how that would have given them a clue
1: Lucretia as a figure from classical, let's call it legend, somewhere in between myth and history, is from the kingdom of Rome. That is, the polity of Rome before the empire, before the republic, when it was just an ordinary kingdom ruled by a king like most other ancient polities were. And she's in fact a part of why it became a republic. She was beautiful and the prince, one of the sons of the king, saw her and thought her beautiful and wanted to have her, and we shall say delicately, did not take no for an answer. And it was this outrage that precipitated her suicide. And it was the horror over all these things that had happened that galvanized the people to overthrow the monarchy and establish the Roman Republic. And so when we think about The themes of this story and the way that republican, that is, uh, non monarchical systems interact with monarchies, it's interesting that we're dealing with someone named Lucretia, this important figure in the history of the establishment of the Roman Republic, which serves as the model for republics all the way through history.
0: And because of that dagger that Kathleen referenced in that portrait. This is historically something that the people who named her would have been thinking of.
1: Yes.
2: Yes, that Lucretia is a character who was not able to really revel in her own power, was really powerless as a woman. While the Lucretia that we know is quite the opposite. She is a woman who uses her sexuality to give her power. But Mm. right now, she is in a position where her husband has overruled her and is not allowing her beauty and sexuality to influence him, which is putting her at a disadvantage.
1: Yes, for all the power that she holds, she is in a patriarchal system. Mm -hmm. And the moment that the more powerful man says no, she has nothing but the powers of persuasion left to her.
0: Or in the case of the end of Act One, she quickly gives the young man, Gennaro, the antidote, and directs him to leave town which she believes he has done.
1: And that's fair. It's persuasion and failing that outright Kyle. <laughs> There's a reason why she had a reputation as a poisoner, because if you were a woman who wanted to exert control and in fact, violent control the way that all of the men around you who were of any power were doing, well, the sword was not your weapon. Mm-hmm. It was the vial.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, act two, our final act of the opera We'll open with a little bit of getting us in the mood with these agents again and the fact that everyone's watching everyone. But soon we will transition and see the guys again, Gennaro and Orsini in particular. And Gennaro is explaining to Orsini, I have to leave town. It's not safe for me here. I need to go. But Orsini says, one night, stick around.
1: What could go
2: wrong? You'd think that um, finding out that his friend has been poisoned (laughs) would have been enough to make him go, yeah, let's get the horses battled, but apparently not. Yeah, it's really a
0: focus on the the comradeship, uh, dare I say, the love between these two men, these comrades in arms, maybe even something more. But Orsini will say, pleasure is no pleasure if I do not share it with you. We have sworn to be together until death, he says. And he puts the pressure on pretty hard.
2: Which is really interesting in a play about a woman who was renowned for her love affairs, that we have the opposite. We have uh, brothership. We have male friendship. We have marriage that does not include any love. Lucrezia's love letters we've mentioned before are legend. Byron went to Venice at one point and Mm. read the love letters and took a a lock of her hair. He stole it because he was so enamored (laughs) of her, uh, which is the most Byron thing ever, if you know anything about him. But we have... Very romantic. None of that. We have no real romance. Mm. The best relationship is really between these two comrades in arms. Yeah, and Gennaro does give resistance. He says, my
0: life is under threat. I will be put to death if I do not leave because he knows he... Narrowly escaped death there, but Arcini says, "Listen, I'm going to leave with you. You'll be safer. We will travel together, but not tonight. Tomorrow. Tonight. Tonight's for comradeship. Our buddies are here. We're going to continue to have a good time together."
2: Orsini and Gennaro are agreeing to spend one more night with them and their friends. A couple different other things are going on. We've, we've had a couple of scenes weaving in and out where the the comedic relief, the Rustigello and the cutthroats have, have been plotting here and there. And we haven't talked <laughs> too much about the comedy, but mm-hmm. yeah, they're really bad. They're the, the comedic, bumbling cutthroats who don't really manage to do much harm, to be honest, but they're there they for, for the funnies. Lot. And then Gennaro and Orsini's friends also come back in, Liberato and Vidalazzo and Petrucci and Gazella, and they're all there and they're saying, oh, we're going to go and we're going to drink some wine at the Princess Negroni's palace. So they they have a big night ahead of them. The boys, the boys are back.
1: What a disappointment to go to Princess Negroni's palace and get a wine. Seriously, <laughs> like order the cocktail, guys.
2: <laughs> Had the Negroni been invented yet, Grant? I feel like you of all of us would know.
1: You know, I confess I did some research trying to locate anything at all about this person who I was presuming has some basis in history. It totally might, but okay. I have never heard of them. And uh, all of the research that you turn up on the word Negroni, it turns out, is the drink. So if so, uh, her invention eclipsed her.
0: (laughs) And this party at Princess Negroni's palace, this is the party that Orsini insisted that Gennaro stay around for. And we've got this big party in the palace. So it's time for one of opera's favorites, the drinking song. (laughs) This one will be Long Live Madeira. And they'll sing about wines from different regions, endorsing all of them. (laughs) But then tone changes a little bit. There's a little something ominous in terms of the presentation on stage and in the singing when we toast to the wine of Syracuse, which has been brought in. And because of the nefarious looking person who's bringing it in, we know that there might be something unhealthful. About this wine. But for now, let's just listen to Arsenia and the guys singing the praises of all of the wine and all of the wonderful emotions that wine brings on.
2: listening to opera for everyone we've just heard a lovely drinking song extolling the pleasures of the wine of Madeira and many other places including Syracuse but as we mentioned there's something sinister in the wine of Syracuse and although all of our our five six companions with Gennaro have drunk that wine they are still happy to be together and they sing this beautiful song which Orsini Leads a ballad about the beauty of friendship. So, before we go any further with the consequences of this wine (laughs) drinking, let's listen to this beautiful song. It's our last chance to be happy here.
0: cheerful song. As far as we're concerned at this point, this was our last moment to be carefree and and happy. Because before long, the door is going to open and a grand entrance will be made by our title character, Lucrezia Borgia. And she is gloating. She is feeling victorious and powerful. All these Miscreants, as she sees them—the ones she knows—are responsible for defaming, defacing her palace and defaming her name. <laughs> she's she's quite sure she's gotten her revenge on them.
2: Yes, and and she does it in the most dramatic fashion possible. She's wearing mourning clothes, and she brings in five coffins. Oh boy,
1: that's that's some panache there.
2: <laughs> Don't cross the Borgias. <laughs> but when she
0: explains that she's prepared to receive five bodies. She's in for a little surprise when out into view steps Gennaro and says, five are not enough. A six shall be required. And she's not so smug
1: anymore. It's an interesting response to hear that you've been poisoned. And instead of being like, oh, no, what am I going to do next? To be instead, hey, that's really inconvenient for you, poisoner. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you'd think he'd be asking her for a bottle, a whole bottle of that antidote, wouldn't you?
1: Which he knows at this point she carries around with her.
0: Yeah, he does know that, but he doesn't immediately go that direction. She is the one who goes that direction.
2: Yes, it's made clear that although the antidote exists, this opera is holding to better plot conveniences than to just have unlimited antidote for everybody. There is not that much left. There was just <laughs> enough for one person, really. And there's a little bit left, is 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 what we know.
1: It's like when there's only one parachute on the airplane.
2: Yes, exactly. And that parachute has perhaps a rent in it, you know? Yes. So he pulls out this vial and he says, I will take this if it can be shared among my friends. And she says, there's not even enough for you, really. Maybe enough if you drink it all. Yeah, and he's,
0: uh, well, we talked about his sense of honor earlier.
2: Yes, we've made a lot of fun of them for, especially Gennaro, for being kind of foolish and silly. But they're really the best people in this opera. You know, he's he's saying that he would rather die with his friends than to be the one to survive this horror. And he and they are, in fact, really too good for the world they've found themselves in.
1: Mm.
2: Well, and, and that will play
0: out for sure. <laughs> that will play out.
1: I maintain it's pretty silly. Uh, I mean, I would have said, sure, I'll take the antidote and handed it over to Orsini if I were as in love with Orsini as this guy is.
2: But that's a different opera.
1: That's true.
0: But sticking to his sense of honor, now that she has taken the move to poison all these men, his comrades, he realizes honor demands that he take action. And he tells her in the honorable way, Madam, prepare yourself. You are about to die. He grabs a conveniently placed knife that's sitting on the table.
1: Their their buddy Anton Chekhov left it there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he grabs a knife and he prepares to stab her. And you think that's going to be the end of her because it would make sense. But she says, Gennaro, listen to me. You must stop because... You would be spilling your own blood. And the wheels start to turn in his head.
2: Yeah, I don't know what's worse in this scenario. Finding out that you have poison coursing through your veins or finding out that the woman you're in love with is your mother. Pretty bad on all sides. Uh, Maybe makes sense that he decides to go, you know, keep that antidote.
0: (laughs) Well, he's decided that before it clicks to him and she explains you would be spilling your own blood. You are a Borgia. Your forefathers were mine. Do not commit this terrible sin of spilling your own blood. And he just keeps saying, what? I'm a Borgia? This doesn't
1: compute for him. Sorry. I. I these people are ridiculous humans. <laughs> I mean, this is like some Romeo and Juliet level, like, bad decision making made by teenagers.
2: It's an opera. It's an opera. It is indeed. But it is the last scene. <laughs>
0: Let's hear a little bit of this drama between the man who now realizes that he's speaking to his mother, in fact, as he realizes he's a Borgia and she doesn't want to hear any of the anger. She's just, please spare your own life. Don't murder me. Drink the last dregs of the antidote so that you will not die. Opera for Everyone, and we are rounding towards the end of Donizetti's Lucrezia Borgia. Lucrezia has inadvertently poisoned her son when she very purposely poisoned all of his comrades. And she's trying to convince him, having just revealed that she is his mother, that he needs to take this antidote, this this few drops that remain, if he has any hope of saving his life. And her pleading with him, it's not... Her pleading doesn't seem to work with her husband or now with her son. He is just processing the fact that he is the son of this woman with this amazing reputation of treachery and murder behind her. And as they're having this argument together where he's being furious at her, he hears in the distance, slight distance, because they had moved away, he hears Orsini crying out, his best friend, And he says, Orsini is dying. She doesn't care about that. She gave him the poison intentionally, but she continues to plead, save yourself, do it for your mother.
2: But he is not going to. He holds fast. His heart and his mind are are with his companions, no longer with her. Mm. And so he dies.
0: Right. And here I want to make a, a comment on the actual structure of the opera that Donizetti crafted. In the original production of it, He dies here, and then Lucrezia will sing this final aria after he has died and his dead body is there before her, and she will sing this big aria that Donizetti didn't want her to sing. He wanted her to be crushed by this moment and not burst out into this giant aria that a soprano can belt out in the bel canto style. But the woman who had been hired to be the first Lucrezia, the prima donna that she was, insisted that he write a grand aria for her and he needed to comply, Donizetti. And he did. And interestingly, when the opera is revived some years later, Donizetti reworks some of the opera and he gets rid of that, sets it aside, and he writes an aria for Gennaro at this point about mother I am dying. So we have both of these Donizetti arias available and it's interesting to see even in modern productions different directors will choose to include one of them, the other of them, possibly even both of them.
3: Mm.
2: Mm. Both very sad endings to the story. Well, we have Montserrat
0: Caballé here and so you better believe she's singing the big aria at the end.
2: <laughs> And since that's the last piece of music from this opera we're going to leave you with, I will just conclude the the plot of the opera. Gennaro does die. He dies in Lucrezia's arms, and she is inconsolable crying out about his death. The duke comes in and sees this, and she says, my son, he is dead. And the duke, of course, for the first time, knows that he's made a mistake. Not that it does much to his character since (laughs) the opera is over, but... She is allowed to sing this, this beautiful last piece. And then she faints in the arms of her maidservants and the opera ends. Wow. Yeah. In some tellings of it, she
0: dies there right on stage and she is diminished and gone. Hmm. Well, Grant and Kathleen, once more, I want to thank you again for joining me on this episode of Opera for Everyone. And I want to thank everyone for listening.
1: So much fun being
2: here. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I'm Pat Wright.
1: I'm Grant. One name, like Madonna or Cher.
2: And I'm Kathleen Maria Vandewill.
1: If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast. Make sure to smash that like button and rate, comment, and subscribe. Opera can be challenging. But smashing the like button anyone can do.
2: <laughs> and everyone loves a good story.
1: And a story set to music is even better. And even better than that is subscribing to our podcast.
2: (laughs) Our mission is to make opera understandable. Five-star understandable.
1: Accessible and enjoyable. Because we believe... Opera is for everyone!